0: Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You better go sometime. Hello, and welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to get into this one. It's coming from a woman named Lori. And Lori was in the military, and she went with her... Uh, her squad mates, her, her coworkers, on an excursion trip, uh, an off-duty thing to go whitewater rafting. And she hit a, a dangerous spot, and she got pulled under the rapids and uh, started to drown. And then she had this amazing experience, which I spent quite a lot of time uh, talking about because it had some very fascinating imagery and i i hope it'll be uh, thought provoking and and useful and i just really loved uh, all the detail that she provided i thought she was very well written and and well communicated and she did a very good job of of expressing the inexpressible uh this happened back in uh, may of 1986 so roughly about 30 years ago and Uh, I got this from the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website, nderf.org, and I will post a link in the description below. I highly recommend you check it out and read some of the other stories on there because there's lots of them and they are endlessly uh, um, fascinating to read, although I use that word a lot. But they are, and so you should check them out and, and check out all the amazing work that they're doing over there. So this uh, ended up being quite a long episode, and so I am not going to add any further introduction. Uh, We can just dive right in. This is Lori's near-death experience. Growing up, I was born and raised in Queens, New York, the youngest daughter in a family of five children. My mom and dad raised me Roman Catholic, and worked two jobs each to be able to send myself and two of my siblings to Catholic school. I attended private school from 6th to 8th grade, then an all-girls Catholic school from 9th to 11th grade. My parents weren't devout, and more times than not missed church on Sundays but managed to get the family to Mass during the holidays. I was always a sensitive child, having the ability to see spirits from an early age. Back when I was five or six, I would tell my family members I saw floating orbs and they told me it was just my imagination. After some time, I began to lose that special sensitivity. When I was 17, my parents moved to Port Charlotte, Florida and I attended my senior year of high school in a co-ed public high school. Before leaving New York, I was accepted into the delayed entry program in the U.S. Navy and would join the service after graduating high school in Florida in May of 1985. I was sent to basic training at RTC Orlando for eight weeks. Then I traveled to Norfolk for Ocean Systems Technician Analyst School for 16 weeks then to NOPF Damneck, Virginia, for four more weeks of training. After successfully finishing training for my rating, I was sent to my first duty station, U.S. Naval Facility Cooshead in Oregon, in November of 1985. The day I almost died. It was 1986, and I was 19 years old when I had my NDE. I was in Oregon, and at my new duty station, it was common to get involved in outdoors activities with my coworkers. The Morale, Welfare, and Recreation Office at the NavFac Cooshead encouraged fun and entertaining hobbies and excursions for all service members and their dependents. We could rent ATVs, RVs, camping equipment, paddle boards, boats, fishing, and surfing gear. MWR also offered plenty of sports activities and weekend tickets to various activities. Among their offerings was a day trip to go whitewater rafting on the Rogue River. It was interesting, but I wasn't a great swimmer. I was soon pressured to sign up for the whitewater rafting trip because everyone in my watch section was going. I purchased a ticket reluctantly, joining my coworkers on the Rogue River for their May group tour. The current that year was historically higher and swifter than normal, because spring had arrived, melting the snow in the mountains. I uneventfully traveled through the Class 2 and 3 rapids in an inflatable, Seviler one-person kayak during the morning. The paddling seemed easy, and the flow of the water and conversation around me was rather relaxed. The vast majority of the rapids were pretty forgiving. We stopped at midday for lunch on the shore and to take a rest break before continuing our trip to much more challenging sections of the river. After a few minor rapids in Mule Canyon, our guide led our group into the most dangerous part of the Rogue, known as Blossom Bar. The class four section of the river was clogged with huge boulders and swirling hole-like vortices. The standard route through the churning water to pass the boulders required me to make a crucial left-to-right paddling move to avoid being swept into a lineup of rocks known as the picket fence. My failure to do that quickly caused me to slam into the boulders and roll out of the kayak into the freezing water. I wore a life vest but the current dragged me right into a boiling hole of turbulent water. The shock of the cold water caused me to gasp, and in doing so, I inhaled river water deep into my lungs. I became disoriented, losing my spatial orientation in the water. I could see the sky above, but couldn't reach the surface to get air. The current dragged me down the more I fought against it. My lungs burned as panic set in. I suddenly believed that I was going to die there, and the last thing I remember was saying, God, please help me. Without oxygen, I grew weaker and eventually stopped struggling entirely. I went limp in the cold darkness of the water, and suddenly I could no longer feel the burning and ache of the water in my lungs. The darkness around me grew completely white and I felt like I was rushing at light speed through a tunnel. I felt warm as the pain left me, at peace with myself and the environment around me. Unconditional, pure love radiated all around me and into me. Love covered me like a warm blanket from an unknown source. As I left the tunnel, I was aware of parts of my body that were visible, like my hands, arms, and chest. Looking down, I couldn't see any feet. I did see a silver cord attached to my body, which had a luminescence to it. Looking around me, I could see a room that appeared to be formed from pure white clouds, yet wasn't solid. In the room were three beings, made of shimmering crystal. Light shone through them like a glass prism, forming a rainbow. One was larger than the other two, but all of them spoke to me. I was afraid of them, and they seemed to realize this. Instantly, they transformed into what I recognized as angels. They didn't have bird wings. They had fibers, like fiber optic cables, that were shaped like wings, and pure light shone through the fibers, forming colors in all shades. When they spoke, their messages were sent telepathically they could read my thoughts. Looking into their eyes, they were shades of intense colors that changed and shifted with electric sparks. Almost as if I were watching a DVD, still spinning in a DVD player. And the love radiated from their eyes, as if I were the most precious creation God had ever placed into existence. It was as if they knew me intimately, yet I didn't feel uncomfortable feeling that they did. The larger angel said, You have arrived too soon. The time has not yet come for you to be here. You must go back and finish your work on earth. But since you are here, we will show you things. The larger angel held a large book, but its pages were like images instead of words. I saw scenes of my life from the moment of my conception to the moment I fell out of the kayak into the river. The pages flipped rapidly, like watching a movie. I was instantly reminded of all the things I did for others, or failed to do for someone. They showed me a man I didn't know, whose face I could not see clearly, and many children that were still yet to be. One of the smaller angels said, I am Yashael, I have been with you since the dawn of time, and I will be with you for eternity. You must go back, you have to be there for them. I will show you what you can look forward to until then, then you have to go back to your body. Instantly, Yashael and I were teleported to the center of a vast golden field. I could hear the most beautiful music, and I could feel it moving through me. The breeze blew against the tall golden wheat stalks, and as it did, I could feel the spirit of all things living around me. Animals, plants, the elements. I was one with them. I looked up and saw a huge ball of light that cast the purest warm light all around me and felt God touch my skin. He knew me. He loved me no matter how imperfect my earthly life had been. I was perfect and whole. I felt no pain. The angel took me up higher, and I felt like I was soaring endlessly. I could see a huge waterfall with no beginning and no end. Love and peace reigned here. I sensed the presence of loved ones that had passed on, but I didn't see them. We moved over the golden field, and at the end of it was a country fence and beyond that was an enormous tree with a canopy of gold leaves. When the breeze touched the leaves, they would fly off the tree's branches in the shape of colorful birds of all varieties. There was a lake beside it, and it flowed on both sides of the boundary. I looked down into the water, and it had a gloss to it like liquid mercury does. But when you look through it, you can see people that are living on earth. Yashiel said again, I have been with you since the dawn of time, and I will be with you for eternity. You cannot cross the barrier. It is time for you to go back to your existence on earth. You have work to finish first. Words cannot express the sorrow I felt to have to leave that place. I cried and begged for him to let me stay. He said, When it is time, I will come for you. But now and with that, he wrestled my spirit back into my earthly body, with so much force that I was popped clear of the rocky hole that I was trapped in under the water. All the water I inhaled came flying out of my lungs as I gasped and took a panicked breath of air. I became aware of the pain almost immediately in my chest, and the hand of a rescuer grabbing me by the back of my life vest. I nearly knocked him out of his kayak, and then someone else on a bigger water boat pulled me up into the boat and back into this earthly dimension. It took me a long time to understand why I am here, and still I question, why me? I even did research about the Rogue River after my near drowning. Over 21 people have died at Blossom Bar since my NDE. They died and I survived. Because of my NDE, I am closer to God and realize now that life is not a series of consequences but of parallels and choices. My choices directly affect those around me and we are all interconnected. My purpose has not yet been fulfilled. It would take me years to realize that I was meant to heal others. My sensitive abilities grew stronger after my NDE. I am empathic, claircognizant, and clairaudient now. I can hear the voices of those beyond the veil, but still have not trained myself to see spirit clearly with human eyes. My NDE has and will continue to be the most metaphysically profound experience I've ever had. I was brought to tears writing this memory of my experience. my words pale in comparison to all the things I saw and felt heard during my journey into a heavenly realm. I'm not religious, but I remain closer to spirit than ever because of my NDE. I know that there are dimensions beyond this one, and that I am here for a reason. I have a purpose, and until it is fulfilled, I will be here. Okay, so that was Lori's near-death experience. I thought it was quite beautiful, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. I guess we can start out. She gives us a lot of information about her upbringing and her past, and I guess she was raised uh, kind of a strict Catholic. But she mentions that she had, as she as a kid, she i guess was sensitive to spirits and and uh, voices that sort of thing uh she says i was always a sensitive child having the ability to see spirits from an early age back when i was 5 or 6 i would tell my family members i saw floating orbs and they told me it was just my imagination and that's something that we we've seen before in certain Uh, Certain near-death experiences uh, People Having an openness To uh, Another world To the spiritual world So to speak Uh, And so I don't know whether that's Something that Is Is just a random percentage Of the population That happens to have near-death experiences Or we know That Near death experiences seem to have some kind of volition of their own, of their own uh, kind of will and uh, willingness to express something that it gets taken back. And so uh, the question would be would people who are open and sensitive to a, a spiritual side of life uh, perhaps be more likely to have a near death experience? Because it seems at least from what I've read and heard that not everybody has a near-death experience in a life-threatening situation that it's somewhat variable like who has one and who doesn't it's not it's not like every time somebody comes close to death that they have an NDE and so I that's kind of a, a open question for me is is whether... Uh, I don't know, the a person's disposition or or openness to a spiritual side of life be a factor in, in whether they would have a kind of drawn out a near death experience like Lori and others have had. So that's something I don't really know, but uh we can keep in mind as we go along. Um and she clearly uh, regains some of those gifts, I suppose, or at least some abilities after her experience, which is something we often see reported uh, with people who have had a near-death experience. So she she gives us a lot of detail about her life and, and setting the scene and does a good job of describing kind of everything that she went through up until her experience, going going rafting, and and what happened to her and her, her kayak. Um, but the experience itself starts off in, in a very uh, classic kind of near-death experience way. As she's feeling cold and limp in the darkness of the water, suddenly everything goes white, and she begins rushing up a tunnel, which is like the bedrock of, of most near-death experiences, uh, although it's not in, in every near-death experience, of course. There's, there's a lot of variation, but that's a very common motif. And then she says that she felt the pain leave her and she feels a warmth come over her. She feels peace, and then immediately she is kind of uh, surrounded by unconditional love, pure love. Uh, she describes it like a warm blanket, which I'm sure must have felt incredible at that moment. So, she she has this this kind of classic introduction to a near death experience as it as it unfolds. Um, she says that she she's kind of looking around at her body and she can't see her feet, but she's aware of her. Uh, Her hands, her arms and chest, and they're visible to her. She looks back and sees a silver cord attached to her body, uh, which I guess is glowing. This is something that I don't know if I've discussed it before. I I don't think it's come up in any of the episodes that I've done, but uh, this is a, uh, I guess, a common motif in in some near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences as well. The idea being that when you leave your physical body um, in this kind of in-between state where you're still able to come back, that there is a silver cord running from your soul, spirit, body, subtle body perhaps, back to your physical body, and that if this silver cord is severed, if it's cut, then you are uh, not able to come back. Um, but yeah, this is something that we, we haven't really discussed before and, and, I will look for examples of it in the future, not only in other near-death experiences, but also if there's anything in mythology or, or cultural stories of, of having this kind of tether back to the physical body. Okay, so she's in this white room, uh, that looks like it's made of clouds, um, and she is approached by three uh, beings, which seem to be made of, of crystal. Now, just to start with, I thought it was interesting that it is three beings. Um, it, seems, it seems to be a, a bit of a, a pattern. Uh, of course, not in every near-death experience, but at least we did an episode here recently, Richard's near-death experience where he was approached by three angelic beings as well. And I don't know quite what to make of it, at least in dream symbolism, the numbers three and four are very significant, as well as in religious ideas uh, worldwide. Uh, Four being kind of a totality and wholeness, and three being... Uh, more of something becoming and evolving. And so here we have the three angels uh, in opposition to the, the uh, fourth, which is Lori, the kind of, I guess, the outsider in this case. But uh, So there's that kind of tension between three and four, uh, which is quite uh, meaningful and significant, especially in, in many different uh, religious and spiritual traditions. But the so what happens is she she's scared. I guess the whatever their form is it makes her afraid. And I thought this was cool to point out that it's not she. They immediately change their form to something that uh, something that is l- less frightening to her, and it's she is automatically and unconsciously having this reaction of fear which is totally warranted i mean in any any um, extra mundane experience you know i, I it, it would make sense to me to be freaked out the entire time so so she has this automatic response to seeing these beings which was fear and fright, and they realize this and automatically transform into something that is more familiar, uh, something that is less uh, i don't know less frightening. Uh, they take a more angelic form and I thought this was interesting to point out in relation to something we've been talking about over the past couple of episodes of of why near-death experiences take the form that they take, and this seems to be uh, seems to show, at least or suggest, is probably a better way of putting it it seems to suggest that the forms in a near-death experience are responsive to, if not rooted in, one's own unconscious kind of feeling or or content, that an automatic kind of change in one's feeling would affect, or, or one's attitude, one's state of mind, I'm, it's hard to find the right words to describe it, one's psyche, perhaps, that if there is a kind of an, uh, change in that your state, in your state of being, state of mind, that the Near death experience itself, perhaps, will change as well, which which shows a kind of relationship between the two. I, I wouldn't want to say equivalence, uh, but but there is a pairing there of of one's own psyche and and feeling and and state of mind, state of being, emotion, and and the forms and and figures that one encounters, so I thought. I mean, that's fascinating to me, um, and and that kind of goes in line with some of the previous episodes where we've been discussing why someone sees the divine personified as a being, or or sees perhaps a more natural image of the divine, something that is more inclined or. Yeah, more <laughs> in line with nature. Um, so I thought that was that was really interesting for for her to immediately have the beings change. But I will point out that we've had a more conscious choice of form as well. If you remember Natasha's near death experience back a while back, which we've mentioned here recently. She was told by the being that he could be whoever she wanted him to be, and she chose for him to be a guardian angel. So there is a conscious element to it as well, as, as the more unconscious kind of <laughs> relation, I suppose, between the, the experience and the form and the image and one's own psyche. So uh, these beings transform from being made of crystal and with light shining through them into a, uh, the form of angels, which she says she recognized that they didn't have any wings but had kind of fiber optic cables that came out of them and, and light was shining out of them. She mentions that they their communication with her as in almost all near-death experiences was not Um, using words, but was done telepathically and that they could read her thoughts, which that's always very interesting. Um, And they are looking at her. She, She says that they look at her with love radiating from them as if she was the most perfect creation that God had ever made. So she feels this intense, unconditional love coming from these beings. And she says that it feels like they... They knew her like really well, like intimately. Um, and she didn't feel uncomfortable by that. So there was this kind of preexistent relationship there. She's told that she um, has come too soon. <laughs> she shouldn't be there, and but she, <laughs> I, I like this. The larger angels like, "Well, while you're here? you know, we'll, we'll show you a few things. We'll show you around which I thought was was kind of funny. But the uh, this is where her life review begins, which is another uh, staple of most near-death experiences. And what's interesting here is that the life review occurs uh, in a book. The angel has a large book, which he shows to her. And uh, there are obvious kind of allusions here to the book of life, which we've discussed a couple times, but... The idea of a book containing one's life, or the the life of all all beings on Earth and and elsewhere, maybe, <laughs> um, but the book containing a life and who should be where and and keeping track of of the course of perhaps a divine plan or, or something like that. But what's interesting is again, not only you know does she mention that. They're speaking telepathically, so to speak, <laughs> um, communicating telepathically without words, which is something we see all the time. But also here when she is shown this book, it, it she says that it's images instead of words, that the entire life review is conducted, uh, even in this book, uh, using image and, and form. Which is uh, goes right in line with, I guess, the standard form of communication in, in whatever this realm is. Uh, you know, people often say that when they come back, there aren't any words to describe what they went through. That words are insufficient for capturing what they experienced. And that seems to be the case even in this life review where this book shows image instead of word, which would suggest that image, symbol, um, just pure experience itself is a deeper form of communication than, than words and language, perhaps a more primal version of, of communication than than our clunky <laughs> words and misunderstandings, which that's what people seem to say when they come back from a near death experience as well. So so the life review goes right up until her death or her drowning, her incident. And then she has shown some things that have not yet happened. She seems to be given a glimpse of her future family, of the man she will be with and the children she will have. Although an interesting detail is that the man's face is not clearly visible. And that's a motif that we've come across before and uh, in a near-death experience and uh, it also occurs quite frequently in dreams. Which is <laughs> its kind of funny. It's like oh, we don't want you to know who who the guy is, that it kind of adds to the mystery of it, I guess, that uh, perhaps that feeling of, of finding someone who you've, who you've known your entire life and yet you just met them for the first time. So I thought that was really cool. And, and then she speaks to her guardian angel, which I suppose is, is different from the other two beings. And his name is Yashael. He says, I am Yashael. I have been with you since the dawn of time. I will be with you for eternity. You must go back. You have to be there for them. I will show you what you can look forward to until then. Then you have to go back to your body. So I tried to find the etymology of the, word, uh, the name Yashael. I thought that was a very interesting name, and so I tried to look up and see whether that had a particular meaning. And I couldn't find anything, but I found something that was close. Let me pull it up here. So I found the name Yeshiel, uh, Y-E-C-H-I-E-L. And I don't know whether that would be closely related to the name that she wrote down, Yashael. Um or whether it's a separate name, it's Hebrew. But the name Yeshael means, May God live, or God shall live. So, if that is a similar name to the name of her guardian angel, I thought that was very appropriate and and quite poignant that uh, her guardian angel would have a name that means um, that God shall live. So... So then Lori is instantly teleported to a heavenly, paradisal, uh, nature scene. This place where there is a lot of symbolic imagery, which, which we're going to discuss, and and a, a lot of interesting kind of ideas that emerge out of uh, what she sees. So she's in a vast golden field, and, and it's this field of wheat, and she hears beautiful music, which is something that, again, we, we come across many times in, in reading near-death experiences, this beautiful music of the spheres, which I would love to hear. I mean, people describe it as, as the most beautiful music, and that's it's right up my alley. But uh, to start with, she mentioned, she says, The breeze blew against the tall golden wheat stalks. And as it did, I could feel the spirit of all things living around me, animals, plants, the elements. I was one with them. Okay, so this is a a very, very symbolic sequence that she describes, this this image. And particularly with the word, with the the breeze, the wind, moving through the, the wheat stalks. So, uh, there's something I wanted to read in connection with this, but to start out, it is very symbolic because the wind has a very close connection and association with breath and with spirit, which she clearly emphasizes in her description of of what she saw. So, I, I looked up the ancient Greek word for breath, which is pneuma. Um, and it says uh, pneuma is an ancient Greek word for breath and in a religious context for spirit or soul Um, so there's a lot here I'll just skip down to something which might uh, be familiar to us in Judaic and Christian usage pneuma is a common word for spirit in John 3.5, for example, pneuma is the Greek word translated into English as spirit. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, pneuma, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. In some translations, such as the King James Version, however, pneuma is then translated as wind in verse 8, followed by the rendering spirit. The wind, pneuma, bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the spirit, Numa. So even, you know, biblically it is used interchangeably between wind and spirit. And and so the her description of, of her connection mm-hmm her feeling of the the spirit of all the things around her as this wind, this breeze moved through these wheat stalks is, is highly symbolic and something that we can find many examples of in, in religious writings, uh, not only the Bible, but in other places as well. So I thought that was very interesting. and And now I'm going to do some reading from On Dreams and Death, I hope you're not getting bored of it, (laughs) but it has been highly useful, and and you'll see see why um, as as a way of discussing the symbolism of the wheat and vegetation and the tree that she sees a little bit later on in this this place. So I'm going to read a few passages from On Dreams and Death by Marie-Louise von Franz. Uh, I apologize it's going to be a little bit disjointed. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but it should be fairly relevant to discussing the, this imagery and, and Lori's near-death experience. This follows the widespread archetypal idea that the dead return to life, as it were, in the same way that vegetation does. So an image of vegetation very often appears in the dreams of people who are about to die. A man in his 40s came to me for a single consultation. He had been given a medical death warrant, melanoma sarcoma, with many metastases, a diagnosis which he could not accept. The night after he received this diagnosis, he dreamed the following, quote, he saw a green, half-high, not-yet-ripe wheat field. A herd of cattle had broken into the field and trampled down and destroyed everything in it. Then a voice from above called out, Everything seems to be destroyed, but from the roots, under the earth, the wheat will grow again. Quote. I saw in this dream a hint that life somehow continues after death. But the dreamer did not want to accept this interpretation. He died shortly thereafter, without having become reconciled with his fate. This dream motif reminds us of John 12 24. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What does this saying of Christ mean? How can life develop, quote, out of invisible roots, after death has decomposed the body? After all, what does wheat mean? For obviously it is not meant to be understood concretely, but rather as a symbol. We are able to understand Christ's saying in the Gospel of John only if we place it in its historical context. It alludes to the fairly widespread ideas of late antique syncretism to a time when the symbolism of the Ellusian mysteries, of the festivities of Attis, Adonis, and Tammuz, of the Egyptian death rituals, and of early alchemy, were all more or less universally known. Now skipping ahead a little bit, uh, Marie-Louise von Franz is going to be quoting from an alchemical text. His instruction is as follows. Go then to a certain laborer, Ashab. And ask him what he has sown, and what he has harvested. And you will learn from him that the man who sows wheat also harvests wheat, and the man who sows barley harvests also barley. Stimulated by this information, Isis, who has begun to reflect upon all of creation, realizes that it is the condition of man to sow a man, of a lion to sow a lion, of a dog to sow a dog. And if it happens that one of these beings is produced against the order of nature, he has been engendered in the state of a monster and cannot subsist. For a nature rejoices another nature, and a nature conquers another nature. The same is also true of gold, and there is the whole of the mystery. What does this seemingly absurd text mean? First it speaks of wheat and barley— and in doing so implies already what it refers to symbolically. For Osiris, the dead husband of Isis, was referred to as, quote, wheat, and also as barley, and every dead person is described in the same manner. For according to the old Egyptian view, every deceased person becomes the god Osiris at the moment of death. The corpse and the mummy, as we know, were therefore always addressed as Osiris in in. Thus, in the Egyptian book of aphorisms, the deceased says of himself, I live, I die, I fall down, the gods live forever. I live in wheat, I grow in wheat, which the gods sow, hidden in Geb, in the earth. Osiris is also called the lord of decay and the lord of the abundant green. Or a dead man declares, I am Osiris. I came from you, wheat. I entered you. I became fat in you. I grew in you. I fell into you so that the gods live from me. I live as wheat. I grow as wheat which the sacred ones harvest. Geb, the earth god, covers me. I live, I die. I do not perish. What this image of vegetation obviously refers to is a continuation of the life process, which lasts forever and which is beyond the opposites of life and death. Thus the deceased in another coffin text says, It was Atom who made me wheat when he sent me down to the earth, to the fire island, when the name Osiris was given to me, the son of Geb. I am life. As is clear from these quotations, wheat and barley are not to be understood concretely, but as symbols for something psychic, something which exists beyond life and death, a mysterious process which survives throughout the temporary blooming and dying of the visible life. This archetypal idea of such a continuing process in nature also appears in a dream that J.B. Priestley relates in Man and Time. Okay, so I just wanted to pause here to try to stay focused and and make sure everything is clear uh, in the course of this discussion about uh, the imagery in Lori's near-death experience and then trying to understand it by bringing in this extra material from Marie-Louise von Franz. So we started off with this idea of wind, breeze being equivalent to breath. And spirit, which the the association there, if we try to think like an ancient person, is is quite uh, self evident. the The way you can tell that someone is alive is if they're breathing, and so there is this uh, natural kind of um, symbol that arises, uh, connecting the breath with a person's spirit, and then. That being associated associated with the wind, um, just in general, and so we we have the numa, the wind, moving through the wheat, which we started to discuss here as as being symbolic of the 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 dead body itself, and also the process of life and death that the vegetation, you know, shrubs and grasses and bushes and Trees and wheat and barley, all these things die and are reborn, and this is an, a very natural symbol to, that has, has emerged to represent people's beliefs about uh, the nature of life and death and, and the, how they are connected. And here we, we have that image emerging again in Laurie's near-death experience. And it's important to point out that none of this, none of this, is any proof of anything, especially not in any scientific sense. But they are hints and suggestions as to perhaps something that is um, that is true, that is uh, beyond us, and that we have to we can only interact with through the medium of metaphor and symbol and image. That this is just one way of perhaps getting an idea or a hint of of what is really going on in our lives and everywhere it it crops up everywhere from egyptian death liturgy and r- religious texts to a, a modern near death experience i mean lori had a, an amazing amazing description of, of what she saw that as the wind this breeze moved through this wheat, as the spirit moved through life, through the body, she felt a connection with all living things. And then she mentions that she sees above her this all encompassing bright light, this ball of light that she that was above her, and she felt this beautiful warmth. She says she felt God touch her skin, so she equates this this Feeling or this this ball of light with God himself, and she says that he knew me, he loved me, no matter what, uh, no matter how imperfect my earthly earthly life had been. I was perfect and whole. I felt no pain. So as this this process unfolds, this, this series of images of of the. Uh, the the wind and the wheat and then this connection with all life, then she she sees God and and feels God, and so this is all very highly symbolic, and hopefully by pointing out other examples of this kind of imagery, it gives us a, a sense of its its truth, um, although in a very symbolic kind of hinting kind of way. So now uh, we should talk about the tree that she sees, just because it is uh, something that we're going to discuss in the reading from Marie-Louise von Franz as we continue it, and particularly in this dream that I was just about to read um, from J.B. Priestley in this book. So she says that we moved over the golden field and at the end of it was an, an, a country fence and beyond that was an enormous tree with a canopy of gold leaves. When the breeze touched the leaves, they would fly off the tree's branches in the shape of colorful birds of all varieties. So again, we, we have this uh, a similar process as what occurred with the, the wheat. It's being reiterated in a different form. The breeze... Hitting the leaves of this tree, which trees are also highly symbolic, and that's something we'll discuss uh, momentarily, becomes life itself. That the the spirit entering the leaves um, become birds, which fly off, and and so there is a a very interesting dream that is in this book that involves birds and and the passing of of life the the spirit of life moving through them, which I think will be uh, quite fascinating to discuss. Uh, we can also point out here that she reaches a boundary, which is <laughs> fairly um, fairly unassuming, I guess. It's a, just a country fence, and she cannot go cross it. She is told by Yashael, I have been with you since the dawn of time and I will be with you for eternity. You cannot cross the barrier. So here we often come across a door or a threshold or some kind of gate or something that represents the the boundary of, of where the individual ego consciousness is allowed to go. And in this case, it is a country fence, which is 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 very cool. I think, you know, it's it's not something that's <laughs> it's not something I have seen before. So, I thought that was very interesting. But we will continue with the reading from On Dreams and Death. We're going to go right into the dream from J.B. Priestley, uh, which I think you will see is is very related to to these images in Laurie's uh, experience. Quote. I was standing at the top of a very high tower, alone, looking down upon myriads of birds flying in one direction. Every kind of bird was there, all the birds in the world. It was a noble sight, this vast aerial river of birds. But now in some mysterious fashion, the gear was changed and time speeded up so that I saw generations of birds, watched them break their shells Flutter into life, mate, weaken, falter, and die. Wings grew only to crumble. Bodies were sleek and then, in a flash, bled and shriveled. And death struck everywhere at every second. What was the use of all this blind struggle towards life? This eager trying of wings. This hurried mating. This flight and surge all this gigantic, meaningless, biological effort. As I stared down, seeming to see every creature's ignoble little history almost at a glance, I felt sick at heart. It would be better if not one of them, if not one of us all, had been born, if the struggle ceased forever. I stood on my tower, still alone, desperately unhappy. But now the gear was changed again and time went faster still and it was rushing by at such a rate that the birds could not show any movement but were like an enormous plane sewn with feathers. But along this plane flickering through the bodies themselves there now passed a sort of white flame trembling, dancing and then hurrying on and as soon as I saw it i knew that this white flame was life itself the very quintessence of being and then it came to me in a rocket burst of ecstasy that nothing mattered nothing could ever matter because nothing else was real but this quivering and hurrying lambency of beings birds men or creatures not yet shaped and colored all were of no account except so far as this flame of life traveled through them. It left nothing to mourn over behind it. What I had thought as tragedy was mere emptiness or a shadow show. For now, all real feeling was caught and purified and danced on ecstatically with the white flame of life. I had never felt before such deep happiness as I knew at the end of my dream of the tower and the birds. Priestley understood the flame in his dream as the eternal cosmic self, an interpretation which will be discussed below. The symbol of a life fire pervading everything visible and invisible was even more specifically commented on by the Gnostic Simon Magus, a contemporary of the Apostle Peter. Simon, who was decisively influenced by Heraclitus, taught that the cosmos consists of fire, one half of which produces the visible world, the other half the invisible. The latter is an especially divine fire, and quote, the treasure house of all perceptible and invisible things. This fire resembles the great tree which appeared to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream, Daniel 4.7, a tree that provided nourishment for all living things. Its leaves, branches, and trunk, which represented visible life, were eventually destroyed by fire. However, the fruit of the tree, which is the human soul, would not be burned, but would be brought to the heavenly barn after first being purified and freed of its earthly form. This fruit is God's image in the soul. The invisible half of the cosmic fire possesses consciousness, whereas the visible fire is unconscious. This passage states that the incarnated half of the world energy dissolves and, quote, dies away, whereas an essential part of it, which is capable of consciousness, i.e. the fruit, continues to exist. For Simon, this fruit is that part of the human soul which resembles God's image. In psychological language, a symbol of the self. According to the evidence of these images, the self has a life that survives death or has a form of life that flows through the universe, and paradoxically enough, somehow flows through the visible world at the same time. When in our alchemical text, the angel Omneal says to Isis that the whole mystery lies in understanding that he who sows wheat will also harvest wheat, he alludes to that eternal life which permeates the whole of creation. Now we're going to skip ahead a little bit and discuss the symbolism of the tree. Along with grass and grain, the tree also often appears as a symbol for death's mysterious relation to life. Thus, for instance, the aforementioned symbol of the tree made of visible and invisible world fire, world energy, carried for Simon Magus the sense of life and death united within itself. Whereas in the teachings of the Manichaeans, and in keeping with their generally dualistic view of the world, the tree was divided into a tree of death and a tree of life. The former, planted by the demon of desire, ugly and split up within itself, symbolized matter and evil. The latter, however, signified gnosis and wisdom. It is the tree of knowledge, whose fruit opened Adam's eyes when he ate of it, At some future time, the Redeemer will cut down the tree of death, but will plant and preserve the trees of good. The tree of light is also represented as a tree of precious stone. In the impressive dream series of a young woman dying from cancer, reported by Jane Wheelwright, the final dream is as follows, quote, I was a palm tree, the middle one of three trees. An earthquake was about to occur that would destroy all life, and I didn't want to be killed by the quake. As Wheelwright remarks, the tree is, among other things, a mother symbol. The dream tree therefore represents a devotion to, quote, Mother Nature. Jung comments on the Germanic legend, according to which man originally came out of trees and will eventually disappear into them again. The world of consciousness yields to the vegetative. The tree is the unconscious life which renews itself and continues to exist eternally after human consciousness has ceased to exist. A dying 75-year-old man had the following dream, I see an old gnarled tree high up on a steep bluff. It is only half rooted in the earth, the remainder of the roots reaching into the empty air. Then it becomes separated from the earth altogether, loses its support and falls. My heart misses a beat, but then something wonderful happens. The tree floats. It does not fall. It floats. Where to? Into the sea? I do not know. End quote. And we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Jung points out in The Philosophical Tree... That in the alchemical tradition, the tree is also considered to be a symbol of the opus alchemicum. Psychologically, it symbolizes the individuation process, that is, the continual inner development towards a higher awareness, in which over and over again new lights are seen. Such a tree also exists in the heavenly Jerusalem of the book of Revelation, quote, through the middle of the street the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations in the islamic paradise there are also numerous trees of precious stones the most frequent being the so-called tula tree quote its root is of mother of pearl and its leaves are of silk and brocade there is no space no arch no tree in the garden that could not be shaded by a branch of the tula tree. Its fruits are rare and very much desired in this world, for they certainly do not exist in this world. Its roots are in the sky, and its light reaches into every corner of the world. End quote. Here we have an inverted tree. Honorary garments emerge from its crown for the pious. One may compare this with the little blue cloths in the dream, which protect the dreamer from disintegration. Jung writes about this inverted tree, The alchemist saw the union of opposites under the symbol of the tree, and it is therefore not surprising that the unconscious of present-day man, who no longer feels at home in his world, and can base his experience neither on the past that is no more, nor on the future that is yet to be, should hark back to the symbol of the cosmic tree rooted in this world and growing up to heaven, the tree that is also man. In the history of symbols, this tree is described as the way of life itself, growing into that which eternally is and does not change, which springs from the union of opposites, and by its eternal presence also makes that union possible. It seems as if it were only through an experience of symbolic reality that man, vainly seeking his own, quote, existence, and making a philosophy out of it, can find his way back to the world in which he is no longer a stranger. The dream seems to say to the dreamer that in the beyond, he will continue to grow and to develop toward a higher degree of awareness. And skipping ahead again for the last time. The Chinese believed that their ancestors returned to life in their descendants, not as identical persons, but as their intimate life essence, which was also that of the family. Hence, there is a mystical analogy between the dead, who go into the earth for a winter's rest, and the grain which rests in the northern storage room side of the house and awakens again to new life in spring. In the west, too, in the Mediterranean area, especially in late Mycenaean times, the dead were often buried in so-called pitoi, earthen storage vessels in which grain was otherwise kept. As the grain, sown in spring, awakens to new life, so will the dead, too, arise again in the beyond. Again and again we read in the literature that the vegetation gods are associated with resurrection symbolism, in the sense that Osiris, Attis, Tammuz, and others signified the death and rebirth of vegetation. Seen psychologically, this is incorrect. For rural cultures, the vegetation in its concrete aspect was no mystery, but such an intimate part of their lives that it was not in itself divine. In the cult of the dead, it served rather as a symbol for something unknown, something psychic. And like all archetypal symbols, Was therefore closely interwoven with many other mythical images. Vegetation represented the psychic mystery of death and resurrection. Moreover, one should bear in mind that in reality, all vegetation is characterized by the fact that it draws its life directly from so-called dead, inorganic matter, from light, air, earth, and water. For this reason, it is an especially appropriate symbol, ...for the miracle that out of dead, gross substances, new life can arise. Now man's dead body also consists of inorganic matter only. And indeed, or so one hopes, a living form could arise from it again, as the vegetation imagery indicates. Okay, so I know that was a lot of stuff, and so I'm going to try to tie it together into a nice bow... So it, it makes sense for our purposes and, and hopefully in other purposes as well. As you could probably tell, there was a lot of discussion in, in the reading of, of different kind of aspects and, and representations of this idea of vegetation as a symbol for the um, life and death process. Which we also see in Lori's near-death experience, the wheat, uh, the golden field, uh, which connects her to all living things when the the spirit, the the wind, the breeze, blows through it. the tree that she comes across near the uh, threshold of of her experience which, when the breeze blows through its leaves, its golden leaves, gold obviously being a color representing great value, the highest value, which we even based our entire economic system off of originally. But again, we have the same motif of the breeze, the wind, the spirit, blowing through the leaves and them turning into birds. And she even mentions birds of all varieties. And I, I thought that dream that was uh, mentioned in, in the uh, chapter was, was very interesting and, and kind of similar to, to this part of, of Lori's near-death experience, this image of the tree becoming birds. Now it's different in its uh, specifics, but and and it sounds like this this dream was much more graphic, seeing the uh, the birds dying and and kind of the meaninglessness of it all. Um, whereas whereas Laurie's experience seems much more life affirming. It does not show the death of these birds, but uh, the I suppose the same idea is the the unity and 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 what it's suggesting the the spirit flowing through matter is the creation of life and in the dream of the the birds it it has a, like i said a much more kind of meaningless character to it until the dreamer sees it in the speeding up of time is is actually able to see the the force of life itself. And, and this is uh, very similar to, to what Lori's experience suggests, that image of, of, of spirit creating life and sustaining life. And even in, in the example of the wheat, when the, when the wind blew through it, she felt connected to life. To all living things. And so just to drive the the point home and and put this in opposition to this dream of the birds living and dying and living and dying in this process, this cycle, in which as time speeds up, the dreamer can see the flame of life. In Lori's case, she is just shown life itself, only life, no death and that makes sense because the angel had told her that he would show her things that she could look forward to and she can apparently look forward to life without death life without end and so and so i i hope <laughs> i hope that you know me going through some of these Esoteric kind of arcane and weird things is helps to to make these experiences real and it's not just the experience of, of one person of Lori, but of all of us. And these myriad variety of symbols and images really do belong to all of us. They are the treasure trove of mankind. And I know that I can get pretty analytical and and heady sometimes with talking about this. And I do not want that to ever take away from the full emotional depth and profundity of the experience. Because the the deep emotions, I mean, it it can make you emotional when reading it and hearing it. But to some degree, we're all on the outside looking in when we're going through a near-death experience. And so by looking at some of the more accessible elements of, of the experience that, that we can perhaps see in our own lives, I think that's helpful. And in addition to the wisdom and in, in addition to the deep emotional uh, feelings of love and, and home and all these different things, uh, the language of of near death experiences is, is also this uh, image and form and metaphor and symbol. And although you know near death experiences can be quite forward and direct with some of the messages and wisdom that they express, there's this whole deeper layer of of meaning that if we don't. Plumb the depths of it, then we're not we're not getting the full breadth of of what the experience is communicating uh, what the experience is communicating that that goes beyond mere words, which, as we've discussed, are inadequate, so at risk of wearing your patience, then I wanted to finish. Discussing Lori's near-death experience by rounding out some of the other images that we have not uh, talked about yet. In addition to the vegetation symbolism, which clearly expresses a, the idea of a continuation of life and a unity of life without death. So, in, in this latter half of her NDE... She also mentions that she sees a waterfall without beginning or end. Now, people really seem to like waterfalls. I think we've seen them in a couple near-death experiences before, and I don't know if I've done a very thorough job of talking about them, of of why we like to take pictures in front of them and find them significant and meaningful. And I, I don't think I'll have... I don't think I'll be able to get into it in its full depth, but I did find something in uh, a work by Jung called Mysterium Conjunctionis, which might give us some idea of some of the meaning that is, is trapped there in the, in the image of the waterfall. And so I'm going to read uh, just a brief uh, few sentences about it and, and see, see if it clicks for us. So in this uh, paragraph, Jung is talking about a, a conflict causing a mental neurosis. But if his recognition of the shadow is as complete as he can make it, then conflict and disorientation ensue, an equally strong yes and no which he can no longer keep apart by rational decision. He cannot transform his clinical neurosis into the less conspicuous neurosis of cynicism. In other words, he can no longer hide the conflict behind a mask. It requires a real solution and necessitates a third thing in which the opposites can unite. Here the logic of the intellect usually fails, for in a logical antithesis there is no third. The, quote, solvent can only be of an irrational nature. In nature, the resolution of opposites is always an energic process. She acts symbolically in the truest sense of the word, doing something that expresses both sides, just as a waterfall visibly mediates between above and below. The waterfall itself is then the incommensurable third, In an open and unresolved conflict, dreams and fantasies occur which, like the waterfall, illustrate the tension and nature of the opposites and thus prepare the synthesis. Okay, so while Jung is using that image of the waterfall in a very specific context, in this case illustrating the resolution between a insoluble conflict in a neurosis. I think the basic idea might be useful for us when we're looking at this image of, of Lori's which she sees in a heavenly realm. What does it mean to have a waterfall that does not have a beginning and does not have an end? Um, I suppose it, it would suggest something infinite, something eternal, and going based off of what Jung was suggesting, that the waterfall is a kind of a uniter, a, a image of, of unity between above and below. And here, in this realm, there's this infinite unity, this infinite oneness between the opposites, between. The endless beginning at the top of the waterfall and then the infinite ending <laughs> at the, with the, the flow of the waterfall down below. And so this, this ever ever-running, ever-constant flow of energy seems to be characteristic of whatever this state of being is, whatever this realm is. If if you can make a distinction between those things, it's it's not entirely clear to me that a place in a near death experience is separate from one's own state of being, one's own psyche, one's own disposition or attitude or or soul. Uh, you know, there are many different ways of of trying to. Uh, Use the right word in that in that case, but so it, this waterfall being a meaningful image, a meaningful symbol, expresses that idea of of endless connection and unity and bringing together of of all things, uh, uh, all the opposites, I suppose, of above and below and of all the potential between them this infinite potential this infinite flow of energy which assuming this is something that we are manifest out of that that we can can perhaps have a part of that that our own potential in our lives that we interact with out in the world of things that we could be uh, things that we could do, this potential of experience is, is perhaps a, a an analog of that of whatever that idea is expressing. So I also wanted to read something else in this book, Mysterium Coniunctionis, which means mystery of the of the conjunction of the conjunctio, the bringing together of opposites. There's a passage a few pages ahead that will be useful when we look at this image of the lake that Laurie experiences, that she sees that straddles the boundary between where she is and where she's not allowed to go, uh, presumably farther into death or a point of no return. Now, lakes, bodies of water, the ocean, usually represent the unconscious of of our soul, of our psyche. Uh, that's something that we discussed a bit in the previous episode of the, the podcast and Chengguan's near-death experience, that bodies of water and dreams and, and visions and etc. often represent the unknown, the parts of oneself that are out of which we emerge and presumably which we return to. What's interesting in this case is that as she's looking into this lake, she can see people going about their day, daily lives. It's like she's looking back into the earth realm. And it's it's fascinating because it kind of suggests a it suggests a a um, I don't know, a a a change in perspective or a a an equivalence between this, <laughs> this, uh, this symbol of, of a body of water or of a, a lake, when we dream about it, it, it could be looking into our own depths. But from this other side, from, from the other side of the, the veil, so to speak, uh, in this heavenly realm, when Laurie looks through the exact same symbol she sees the earthly realm, the normal, egoic, material place where we act our lives out. So it's, it's, it, it, it's fascinating because it, it shows, it's kind of like the, the saying of Nietzsche, right? That as you look into the dark or the depths or the abyss, uh, the dark looks back at you it shows it kind of shows a connection there between our vantage point that is uh, mediated and and filtered through the prism of an image a symbol the lake and another detail which she adds is that the surface kind of shimmered like like mercury like quicksilver and so this work of Jung's Mysterium Conjunctionis focuses on alchemy, and, and he had a great paragraph about Quicksilver and, and its meaning. And so I thought that might be useful to add so we can fully flesh out what Laurie experienced in terms of its symbolic meaning. Quote, In these words, Albertus Magnus, more than 300 years earlier than Dorn, describes the celestial substance, the balsam of life, and the hidden truth. His description has roots that go still further back into Greek alchemy, but I cannot discuss this here. His account is sufficient for our purpose. It describes a transcendental substance characterized, as is only to be expected, by a large number of antimonies, Unequivocal statements can be made only in regard to imminent objects. Transcendental ones can be expressed only by paradox. Thus they are and they are not. That is to say, not to be found in our experience. Even the physicist is compelled by experience to make antinomian statements when he wants to give a concrete description of transcendental facts, such as the nature of light, of the smallest particles of matter, which he represents both as corpuscules and as waves. In the same way, the Quicksilver is a material substance, and at the same time a living spirit, whose nature can be expressed by all manner of symbolic synonyms, though only it is true when it is made fire-resistant by artificial means. The Quicksilver is a substance and yet not a substance since as a natural element, it does not resist fire, and can do this only through the secret of the art, thereby turning into a magical substance so wonderful that there is no prospect of our ever coming across it in reality. This clearly means that quicksilver is the symbol for a transcendental idea, which is alleged to become manifest in it when the art has made it capable of resisting fire. Okay, so there's just a few things that I wanted to point out about this little passage in relation to Laurie's near-death experience. Now, there's only a passing remark from Laurie calling the surface of the water in this lake like Quicksilver, or like uh, Mercury. And as Jung describes, Mercury... I can never say that. I'll just say Quicksilver. (laughs) Quicksilver... um, received the projection of being something divine as being symbolic of or or representative of something divine due to its paradoxical nature as being a both a liquid and a metal at the same time. And so um, people in antiquity gave it this kind of divine quality. And Jung goes on to describe that many things that we consider transcendent, um, and to be divine, have this antinomial quality of of being uh, characterized by paradox or containing opposites, which we have discussed many times before, even in this own uh, this very episode, with the idea of the waterfall uniting um, above and below into one flow of energy, and so. Even though this is a small passing detail, I, I don't want to pass it over because the experience itself is, is created uh, autonomously. It's, it's not like Lori is consciously creating what, is she, what she's experienced, but it's kind of a, a, a freely operating uh, expression of something. And it not only expresses wisdom and ideas in, in words through communication with angelic beings in this case and, and in other beings and, and other near-death experiences, but it also communicates via the image, by metaphor of, of the things that are seen and what they, what they suggest, what they express. And they can often have this very paradoxical bringing together of, of opposites aspect to them, which we tend to find meaning, meaningful just in general. And so uh, the, uh, the reason I emphasize this is to is to perhaps give us the tools to find those things in our own life, in our own experience. When the, to to take seriously that which comes to us from within and without, and and to be able to perhaps see the sacred when it enters the human sphere, in whatever form it may be, and whether it's in a dream or if it's in a hunch or an intuition or or someone that approaches you in the streets that has an air of purpose about them, let's say. It could be almost anything. And I think that that is one of the key takeaways from near-death experiences is the idea of purpose and meaning, which gets hammered, <laughs> hammered down like in every near-death experience that, that there is a purpose, there is a reason that things happen and i think that even creates its own its own opposition it, it it's in opposition to the meaninglessness that we often see in our daily lives where we feel like we're just a you know a collection of atoms in a vast universe that doesn't mean anything this this expression of of wisdom from this other place counters that strongly and says that everything indeed happens for one reason or another, even terrible things, which is, can be kind of hard to think about in itself. And it's also hard to hold the tension between those two opposites of the meaninglessness that we often experience and then the knowledge that things do often happen for a reason. But I think that's important for us in In that, for some of us, near-death experiences can help us to form a new myth. Whenever something terrible happens, it's good to have a myth to fall back on, a story to make sense of things. And I don't mean that in a trivial way. There's nothing trivial about myths and stories. I mean, we need them. And so, as we move forward in and trying to bridge the gap between religion and science, it's important to have, uh, to be able to take these things seriously and to have a new myth to go forward and and, and make sense of things when uh, when terrible things happen. And I think near-death experiences can help with that, with their wisdom and and the ideas they they contain as inexpressible and profound and deep and transformative as the experience can be, especially for the person who undergoes it. Like, for those of us who haven't had one, it's just, it's, I can't imagine what that would be like. And that's kind of how they describe it. But But as far as I'm concerned. I consider the ideas that come from near-death experiences to be from the mouth of nature herself, if not something beyond it. Although I would definitely not venture to say what that is. <laughs> but they are given on their own terms from an autonomous source. Although we are we are forced to have to resort to hearsay to discuss them, which is just how it is. its is. We're never going to get around that. It is the most deeply subjective personal experience there is. So that is just a limitation of discussing it. So Lori ends her account by talking about the changes that have come into her life since her near-death experience. She mentions that she's closer to God, although she clarifies by saying that she's not religious, but she is closer to a spirit. And she says that she is here for a reason, which is one of the core tenets of of wisdom that we get from near-death experiences, the purpose that we all have here, although we don't necessarily know what it is. And she talks about how her view of life has changed from being a, a series of cause and effect type of consequences to one that is more focused on parallels and choices. And I would point out that choices are the, the key function and hallmark of being conscious and consciousness itself. And so Lori seems to emphasize that, that our choices affect other people and us being all interconnected, that also affects oneself as we make choices. And she also says that she it took her a while, but she realized that she's meant to heal people. And I think there's, there's part of these stories that can be deeply healing for people who are grieving or who are lost, confused. Who you know, who have possibly done terrible things, or or are hurting from something, you know. There's all sorts of applications to to the things that near-death experiences uh, bring back to us, and I am I'm deeply grateful. Like I say many times, to uh, the people who have the bravery and courage to want to share what they experienced because it's deeply personal and uh, probably the most personal thing that, that someone could share, I imagine. So, I think we'll wrap up there, and uh, I thank you for listening. If you would like to reach out to me. You can send me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. Uh, you can send me a message on the Facebook page. And uh, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform that you use uh, because that just really helps out with the uh, visibility of the podcast. And and also, if, if you know someone who who you think would enjoy listening to the the show, please share it with them. Um, So now we will end with a quote on death. So the quote that we're going to end with today is uh, from Walt Whitman, who is one of my favorite poets. And this was in his uh, magnum opus called Leaves of Grass. And it comes from a poem that is entitled Starting from Pamanocq. Nothing can happen more beautiful than death.